If you will, please turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9. Leviticus chapter 9, we'll read the whole chapter. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar, and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering, and make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering of the people, and make atonement for them, as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat in the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver from the sin offering he burnt on the altar, as the Lord commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burnt up with fire outside the camp. Then he killed the burnt offering, and Aaron's sons handed him the blood. And he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offerings to him, piece by piece, and the head, and he burnt them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he presented the people's offering and took the goat of the sin offering that was for the people and killed it and offered it as a sin offering like the first one. And he presented the burnt offering and offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering and took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar besides the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of peace offerings for the people. And Aaron's sons handed him the blood and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and of the ram, the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the river liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and he burnt the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses commanded. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord, and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And thus concludes the reading of God's holy word. In... Writing, 
of the necessity of reforming the church back in the days of the Reformation, John Calvin wrote the following words. He said, The following two things occupy the principal place and the whole substance of Christianity. First, a knowledge of the manner in which God is rightly worshipped. And secondly, the source from which our salvation is to be obtained. So in Calvin's eyes, the whole purpose and the greatest benefit of the Christian religion is summarized in, in these two points, that we may know how to worship God and that we may know the way of salvation. And it's not without reason that he places true worship of God before the means of salvation for man. Because salvation itself is a means to a greater end. We are saved not for the sake of being saved, but so that we may worship and glorify and magnify our Creator and Redeemer. Now, this way of thinking is, is foreign to much of the modern church. You see, we tend to think of ourselves as the primary end of the Christian religion. We tend to think that the only things that ought to concern us are those things which directly pertain to our salvation. And so if you ever get into worship discussions with someone, you might have been exposed to this line of thinking. Or maybe this line of thinking has been found in your own heart. It's this, it's this way of thinking that, that says that my primary focus in my Christian walk ought to be, quote-unquote, salvation issues. This is oftentimes used as a way to escape having to think critically about our theology and our worship practices. So, if you discuss the way in which we should worship with other Christians, you'll probably be told that you're being too strict. You'll probably be told that you're making mountains out of molehills. Why should we concern ourselves with these things? They might say, what does it matter anyway? It's not like these things are salvation issues. This is the attitude of, of much of the church in our day when it comes to the way in which we ought to worship. If it doesn't concern my salvation, they say, then it doesn't deserve my attention. See, there are many people in the modern church who have made themselves the end of the Christian religion. They've come to believe, whether they admit it or not, that God is more concerned for their salvation than he is for his own worship. But don't be deceived. If you are in Christ, God has redeemed you so that you may worship him. Yes, we ought to be concerned for our salvation. But not at the expense or, or to the neglect of our concern for the way in which we worship God. We ought to take great care of the way in which we approach God in worship. And so this Lord's Day, we're going to begin looking at this text here in Leviticus. And chapter 9 here provides an introduction to the formal public worship of God. 
This is the first formal public worship service in the Bible. And then, Lord willing, as I'm able to preach to you in the coming months, we'll turn to chapter 10 in order to uncover the principle that governs our worship and then the purpose of our worship. And I should say at first, um, it's no secret that Leviticus is one of the books of the Bible that tends to weary the flesh, as it were. It's, it's not the easiest book of the Bible to read. It's, a, it's not like the book of Romans where you could pick it up and, and practical application jumps out at you. It's something you really have to work for to get application out of. But the book of Leviticus, I want to argue, has a hidden beauty. And with the Lord's help, I want to try to uncover that with you this morning. Leviticus as a whole deals with an issue that's actually very relevant to our lives, and it teaches us a lot about the way in which we ought to worship God. And Leviticus 9 is is kind of the outworking or the application of the chapters that come before it. So we need to have an understanding of a few things before we jump into this text. And the first thing we need to understand as we approach this, this chapter and this book as a whole is the function of the tabernacle. And there's really a twofold function of the tabernacle, and we can see them clearly in the two names that are given to describe it. The first name is dwelling place. The tabernacle was to be the dwelling place of the Lord. We see this in Exodus chapter 25, when God begins to instruct Moses on how to build the tabernacle. He asks Moses to collect an offering from the Israelites of, of fine linens and, and gold and silver and all these precious jewels and stones. And he says in verses 8 of 9 in that chapter, And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was intended to be the dwelling place of God. And therefore, throughout the, the latter half of Exodus, God instructs Moses on how to build it, down to very particular instructions. It was all very elaborate, especially when we consider that it, it was a tent and it was designed to be moved. But God took great care to instruct Moses in a very detailed manner. And Moses throughout the latter half of Exodus, is very careful to do all that God says. If you read through the last half of Exodus, you can't miss how closely Moses follows the commands of God. Literally, almost every other verse is, as the Lord commanded Moses. And it was because the tabernacle was to be the dwelling place of God. It was to be the place where God's glory would reside. But then, even more astounding than that, there's another name given to the tabernacle, and that is the tent of meeting. This is what we see in our text this morning. It was the place where God and man could meet and commune with one another. It was a place of intimate fellowship, and fellowship between God and his people. We get a hint of this in, in Exodus 
chapter 33 in verse 7, where it says, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. The tabernacle was a special and a holy place set apart from the rest of the world. This was the place in which God would meet with man and man would meet with God. But there was a problem. After the tabernacle was finished, in the last few verses of Exodus, we read that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It officially became the dwelling place of God. But then we read, But Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting. He was not able to enter into the tent of meeting, the one place in which God was intended to meet with man, and man was to fellowship with God. And why couldn't he enter? Verse 35 of the last chapter of Exodus says that it was because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God was much too holy for any man to approach his glory, not even Moses. So in order for man to approach God, to come near to God, to meet with God, God had to make a way for man to enter his presence. God had to make a way for man to be sanctified. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. It's about God making a way for man to come into his presence. In Exodus, the tabernacle was made the dwelling place of God. And in Leviticus, the tabernacle is made the tent of meeting, the place in which God would meet with man. And so here, already, we have a direct application to ourselves even today. You see, in order to approach God, we must come by the way that he has appointed for us to use. Our worship, our service unto God, our, our approaching unto God must be according to his commands. He is far too holy and we are far too sinful for it to be any other way. We need to be cleansed. We need to be sanctified. We need to be made holy before we could come into his presence. The unclean could not come into the presence of God without being destroyed immediately. And God is, is the source of all holiness. God is the one who could cleanse us. We can't create our own way of holiness. We need to come according to God's commands. And what's the way to be cleansed? It's not through the blood of animals. It's not through the goats and, and, and the bulls and the ox and the sacrifices. It's through the blood of Christ. So when we come to Christ by faith, 
We are washed. We're made clean. We are set apart. We've been sanctified by God. There's no other way but God's way. And the way that God has commanded and created for us to come to him is through his son. That's primary. And so we have in in the opening chapters of Leviticus the instructions for the sanctification of man. First, we have we, we see it through the sacrifices. And second, we see it through the consecrated priesthood. We read in, in Leviticus chapter 4 that everyone who had sinned and wanted to be forgiven in the Old Testament had to bring a sacrifice to the priest. A sacrifice without blemish and, and without spot. And we're told that the priests would take the hands of the sinner and and lay their hands upon the sacrifice. It was a symbol of his sins being laid upon the animal. We see this in in Leviticus chapter 9, in verse 15. Uh, the, The priest brought the people's offering and took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and he slew it and offered it for sin. The animal dies in the place of the people. And the Hebrew here means literally that the priest made the sacrifice to be sin. That's the same language we see in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 pertaining to Christ. So the priest offers the sacrifices and the animal dies in the place of the sinner. And the sacrifice is offered to the Israelites a cleansing from sin that was necessary to draw near to God. Before you could commune with God, your sins had to be dealt with. And this took place through the shedding of blood. See, the sacrifices were a public demonstration of the fact that we are in need Of a substitute. The sacrifices were to be without blemish. And they were intended to take our sins, to become sin for us. And they would die in our place. And they would be burned and ascend up into heaven. The sacrifices were a proclamation that because of our condition, we are too sinful to commune with God in and of ourselves. We must approach him through the death of another who would die in our place. One who's without spot and without blemish. And so in the sacrifices, we have a clear picture of Christ. How can we not think of Christ when we read about these sacrifices? How can we not think about the perfect sacrifice when we read about these these shadows of it? They all point to him. So just like the Israelites in, in Leviticus, he who sins and desires to be forgiven must make use of a sacrifice. We must acknowledge and appeal to the death of Christ by faith.
if we want to be cleansed. It was Christ who, who secured my forgiveness. It was Christ who, who took my sin upon himself. It was Christ who, who, who became sin for me. It was Christ who died. And it was, a, it was Christ who ascended into heaven. This is the appeal that we ought to make. So when your soul is, is troubled by sin, go before the Father and appeal to Christ and to his sacrifice. Pray to him, am I not reconciled with you by his death? Is not your justice satisfied by his suffering? He has died in my place. So let my conscience be at peace. It's only by the blood of the Lamb of God that we can be reconciled with God. Appeal to him for the forgiveness of your sins. Now the sacrifices in Leviticus paint a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. But think about how insufficient these sacrifices were. These sacrifices had to be performed day after day, week after week, year after year. They were a constant reminder that your sins still needed to be dealt with. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 that the law had a shadow of good things to come, but not the very image of the things. And neither could those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. This constant repetition of the sacrifices was, in a way, a a constant reminder of how ineffective these sacrifices were. They pointed to the need for something much greater. They, they symbolized God dealing with sin so that we could have communion with him. They signified the coming of the death of Christ, but they were only a shadow. They couldn't truly deal with sin. They couldn't truly offer redemption or atonement. But of Christ, the perfect sacrifice... We read in Hebrews chapter 9 that he didn't have to offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. But now, once in the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So by the death of Christ, sin has been put away. Death has been conquered. Satisfaction has been achieved. And we may have Peace with God through his death. We may commune with God through him. Redemption has been accomplished. Not by the blood of bulls or goats, but by the blood of Christ. So chapters 1 through 7 describe the various sacrifices here in Leviticus. But then in in chapter 8, we read of the consecration of Aaron and his sons. 
we see the, the consecration or the setting apart of the priesthood. The priests were a picture of our need for a representative or a mediator between us and God. You see, the priests stood in the gap between the presence of God and the rest of the Israelites. And they offered the sacrifices on behalf of Israel. So the Israelites, in order to be sanctified, had to come through the priesthood. And when the priests would would meet with God in the tabernacle, they would do so on behalf of all the people. But in order for the priests to approach God, they needed to be set apart themselves. They needed to be anointed with oil. They needed to be purified with blood. And not only once, but continuously. Before they could perform the sacrifices for the people, they first needed to offer a sacrifice for themselves. We read this in verse 7 of Leviticus chapter 9. And Moses said to Aaron, Go to the altar and lay your sin offering and your burnt offering and make an atonement for yourself. This had to be done so that Aaron would be fit to make the sacrifices For the people. And all the people were gathered around watching Aaron having to deal with his own sins first before he could represent them. And again, day after day, week after week, year after year, they would see the insufficiency of the priesthood. The people constantly had to watch the priests purify themselves. They were constantly reminded that something or someone much greater had to come to be the perfect priest. To once and for all offer a sacrifice to secure the redemption of his people. To once and for all reconcile us to God. To once and for all present us holy and blameless before the Father. And this is what we have in Christ. I love in Hebrews chapter 10, you can almost hear hear the weariness of Paul's voice in the text as, as he describes the monotony of the priestly duties. He says, And every priest stands daily ministering and, and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You could tell it just felt like the same thing over and over again with no end in sight. It was just a constant reminder of the insufficiency of the priesthood. But then he turns to speak of Christ and and he says, but this man, this priest after the order of Melchizedek, this, this man who was, who was greater than all the angels. This priest who ever lives to make intercession for those who come to him by faith. This man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down on the right hand of God. This man, this God-man, once and for all, put away sins. He's the perfect priest. 
He's the perfect sacrifice. And he's been accepted by the Father. And he sits before the Father, interceding for those who are in him. And we catch glimpses of him throughout this text here in Leviticus. We are reminded of how necessary his sacrifice was. For our sin is, is much too deep to be satisfied by the, by the blood of a goat. We need the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We need Christ. But those who look to these rituals by faith were trusting in the sacrifice that was to come. And therefore, even in the shadows of Christ, they were made sufficient and efficacious by God to build them up in the faith. But after Aaron and his sons performed the sacrifices before the tabernacle, we come to the resolution of our text. This, this is, you could say, the, the pinnacle of this chapter, these last few verses here. This is the great response to the problem that we were left with in Exodus. First, we see in verse 22, And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them and came down from the offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And I love, I love Andrew Bonar on this text. He points out that Aaron stood facing the people. The eyes of all the multitude turned towards him. And amid the silence of the people, they, having just witnessed him sacrifice the animals in their place, he lifted up his hands, the very hands that had been wet with blood, and he blesses the people. As if he were pouring over them all the grace and peace that flow from the blood of Christ. And in the same way, Jesus, after having finished his work of redemption, after having offered his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, he is raised from the dead three days after being crucified on the cross. And he appears, he appears to his disciples. And as he ascended up into heaven, Luke chapter 24 tells us, that he turns towards his disciples and he lifted up his hands, those very hands which had been pierced for their sins, and he blessed them. He poured upon them all the spiritual benefits that he merited, having accomplished the work of redemption. And then finally, in verse 23 of Leviticus chapter 9, we see the resolution to the problem we saw in Exodus. Remember, we read there that Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud of the Lord abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. But we see here that after having done all that the Lord commanded, after having sought forgiveness of sins by the sacrifices, we see in verse 23, 
And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and came out and blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. The dwelling place of God has become the tent of meeting. And he meets with them there. And God reveals his glory to them there. And he he demonstrates his approval of their service by consuming the sacrifices with fire sent from heaven. People saw the glory of the Lord. And what was their response? They fell on their faces. They worshipped the Lord. They saw, maybe for the first time, just how sinful they were and how great God is. And there was no better way to respond than by falling on their faces in worship. A lot of the modern church is obsessed with with creating a worship experience. They want as many people as possible to feel like they're getting something out of church. And so they'll, they'll almost do whatever it takes to manufacture some kind of spirituality. And they'll dress it up with, with all this entertainment to grab your attention and, and the music with the lights. And, and uh, it's all meant to stir your emotions. But what the Israelites experienced here was perhaps the most genuine worship you can imagine. There were no praise bands or really anything that would appeal to our senses. It was the simple worship of God as he prescribed it to deal with their sins and to reveal his glory. And they saw his glory and they couldn't help but to fall down and worship. You see, they had seen Moses unable to enter the tabernacle. They had seen the problem. And here they see how God makes a way to fix it. And they were in awe. What about you this morning? Have you seen this problem in your own life? Have you seen how how in and of yourself you are too unholy to approach unto God? Well, he has made a way for you to come to him in worship. And it's through his son, the perfect priest, the perfect sacrifice. And his worship might not be anything spectacular according to your senses. It's simple singing and praying and reading and preaching. But I pray that you would see God's glory in it. This is what God has prescribed for us to do, to see his glory. So let's fall on our faces and worship. R.C. Sproul said that a people in awe never complain that church is boring. This is the Lord's way of approaching him through his son. So rejoice in it. 
be in awe that there's a way to approach God at all. And so this text will serve as as our introduction to public worship. But what exactly have we seen about public worship from this text? Well, first, true worship seeks communion with God. True worship seeks communion with God. Worship is, in the most broad sense of the term, making an approach unto God in order to commune with him. This was the whole purpose of performing the sacrifices and, and consecrating the priests. The Israelites wanted to be able to commune with God in the tabernacle. They wanted to be able to meet with God in the tent of meeting. Secondly, true worship obeys God's commands. They knew that the only way to get access into God's presence was to be made holy. And it's God alone who can make us holy. And so they had to obey God and come in the way that he has prescribed. And last of all, true worship is by faith in Christ. We must come through the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. Because in our fallen state, our sins need to be dealt with before we can approach unto God. And so in order to truly worship the Lord, we need to cast our sins upon the sacrifice who died in our place. Not upon the goats and the rams of the tabernacle, but upon the Lamb of God, who they were all meant to represent. It's through him that we can have access to God. It's through him that we could worship God this day. So come to him by faith. Let's worship God. Amen.